Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. Is it the fault of the archive images that we have not figured out? how to better use them? Or is it our fault as producers and storytellers for not having developed a way that makes this stuff feel brand new? Never settle for what everybody else has done because otherwise you're just doing a retread and you're not gonna bring any freshness to the story. You know, our mandate is always, look, these are iconic stories. These are the stories people think they know. We're gonna find a way to tell it to them like they're hearing it for the first time. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 74. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. The use of archival footage is something that we doc filmmakers are either very accustomed to doing or have little actual working knowledge of, or as the case with most of us doc lifers, we kind of lie somewhere in between the two. Today's show, it's going to be very archival footage centric. Now, that does not mean that this show will be laborious or bogged down in history, or that it will contain information that you've maybe heard a thousand times before. On the contrary, today's episode is going to be an enlightening journey down a well-trodden road that can just sometimes be a little misunderstood, or maybe even underutilized. And we're going to be taking this informative journey with someone who is a master at storytelling through the use of archival materials. And when we come back from a quick break, I'm going to set you up with a little primer for the show by giving you five tips for sourcing archival materials. This is going to be an interesting show, and it's going to contain the kind of information that many of us doc lifers have been seeking in order to use on our own doc projects. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and you have downloaded or are currently streaming The Documentary Life. One thing to keep in mind as we go through these tips is that it is not a list of where and how to license free footage. Yes, I'll certainly mention some places where you can do this, but this is really about best ways and places for you, the doc filmmaker, to properly receive and use archival materials, whether you have to pay for the usage or not. So let's go ahead and get started with our five tips for sourcing archival material. Number one, Understand license fee versus royalty free versus public domain. The very first thing I'm mentioning here is you need to have a working knowledge of the different terms associated with archival footage. An important distinction to understand as you set out to obtain this archival material, and we've talked about this before in the program, is the difference between license fees and royalty free in public domain, or as it's also referred to as copyright free in some instances. 
Now, the obvious one is, is license fees. If you have to pay for a license, you'll have a contract set up between you and the licensing party. They may be a stock photo agency. They may be an individual who owns copyrights to the footage. They could be a commercial entity who owns the copyrights. What you're doing is you're setting up a contract with this entity or individual, and it gives you the rights to the footage, usually for a set amount of time and usually for a type of distribution and territories of distribution, and of course, the fee that's involved. Now, it's the term royalty-free that's the one that often throws people, and with good reason. We see that little word free, we see it attached to royalty, and it's easy to assume that it means that the footage is free to license and use. Of course, this is actually not the case at all. Yes, it may be cheaper than going the usual license route, but it is not free. Royalty-free simply means that you pay a one-time fee. Again, after deciding upon how and where the footage will be used and the duration for its usage, um, you'll pay a one-time fee and then you don't pay royalties on the usage of the material afterwards. It's just that one-time fee. And of course, public domain or copyright free, it is truly free of charge. It is material that's either never had or is no longer under copyright. It is free for use. Which leads me to number two, the National Archives. This one is a no-brainer for anyone living in the United States. It is the primary source for U.S. government films and donated archival collections. And the wonderful thing is that much of the footage or photographs are in the public domain. So the only costs that you'll actually incur are lab costs and or, of course, shipping. Another wonderful thing is that access to their extensive library, which comes with a wealth of notes and information pertaining to the archival material, by the way, it's entirely on the Internet. Now, many of you may chuckle at this and say, well, of course it is, Chris. I can assure you that it wasn't all that long ago that this database, it didn't exist. In fact, in 2004, on one of the docs that we worked on, we had to take a trip to Washington, D.C. to go through footage by hand. We would then have to fill out paperwork there, and then it would take weeks for the footage to be shipped to us. If you think about it, can you imagine the time it would take to research and log information, then upload the archival material to a database? This must have been extraordinary work. In any case, to see what the National Archives has, simply go to archives.gov. You'll be able to take advantage of their searchable library there and then order archival material directly from the site. Of course, I'll put a link to the National Archives in the show notes for this episode. Number three, Focal International. Of course, the National Archives, it doesn't really help my global doc lifers out there. So for you guys, I can recommend this London-based Focal International. Now, don't necessarily expect that all archival material will be free here. This is more of an extensive resource that's intended for professional film researchers, film TV producers, commercial film or audiovisual libraries. Focal International, it will point you to where you need to go to either get permission or to pay a fee for the archival material. What they do is simply supply you with details and information, contact information, and website addresses. Now, the thing with Focal is that it is absolutely massive in what it offers. It pools from over 120 footage libraries from 20 countries from six of the continents. 
Perhaps no Antarctica. Not sure. Maybe Doc Lifer and, and past guest Anthony Powell can get on that. Their website is focalint.org. So it's focalint.org. Again, I'll be posting any, any URLs that I mention here in today's program. I'll post them in the show notes for today's episode. Number four, license up front. The idea here is to license as much as you can afford up front. What this means is that you should take a very broad look at where and how you'd like your film to be distributed well before seeking out licensing of any footage. The reason being here is that, for example, if you were to license a piece of footage for your film for, say, theatrical distribution within the UK and maybe a couple of other European countries, well then when you want to distribute for domestic TV rights or cable TV rights or international TV outlets or you know DVD distribution, both domestically and internationally, well you'd have to set that contract up all over again. And that, unfortunately, can sometimes become far more expensive than if you had done it the first time around. So make sure to know where you'd like to distribute before you contract out for your archival footage. If you can, err on the side of inclusion. Estimate as much distribution as you can. Yes, it may be a little expensive up front, but it could be well worth avoiding having to re-contract footage later on when either you've used up post-production funds or when you return to the entity who you originally purchased footage from, they've suddenly jacked up the licensing fees on you. Lastly, number five, cast out a wide net about your need for footage. The idea here is to cast out a very wide net in the hopes that some archival fishies will come back to you. By getting word out about your documentary, you not only increase awareness of your film, but it's also a way of letting people know, whether directly or not, that you may have a need for archival footage. You'll be amazed at the people who will, out of nowhere, they'll find a way to reach out to you to inform you of old family movies they have that you can use, or photos of your subject that no one else has seen before. As we've been doing our current doc project, Elvis of Cambodia, it's been amazing to see how the world has been reaching out to us to tell us how their father or a friend of the family knew our subject, or how they had music that no one else had heard, or they had photographs that we could potentially use for our film. Now, of course, there will be entities reaching out to you that want to sell you footage. That's to be expected. And really, that's okay, because you might be able to score some cool footage that you never knew about, and that may, in fact, be very affordable. Casting a wide net for potential footage can be a fascinating and sometimes inexpensive way to locate footage that may, in fact, never have seen the light of day. And again, you'll be spreading awareness out about your film, and you may come across people or a story that can help your film that you had never known about prior to this. So those are five tips for sourcing archival material. I hope that this gives you a better understanding of archival materials and where you can go to find them. For additional resources on the subject of archival and to see these tips in written form, remember to visit the show notes for this episode by going to our website at thedocumentarylife.com. When we come back from the break, we'll have a conversation with a documentary producer who has a very intimate knowledge of working with archival footage. 
in particular with work that he has done for his company, 1895 Films, and it's work for the Smithsonian Channel on a show called The Lost Tapes, which is currently in its second season. The Lost Tapes is a historical and biographical documentary series entirely constructed by found footage. You won't want to miss our conversation with Tom Jennings up next on The Documentary Life. So you've got a great idea for a documentary film. Awesome. I'd love to hear about it, but I don't have a ton of time. Can you tell me about it in 30 seconds or less? Oh, you don't quite have your pitch down yet. Okay, that's fine. What's your website where I can find more information? Maybe a press kit I can take a look at. You don't have one. Well, have you thought about how you might raise some funds to help with the costs of making films? They can be expensive, right? You haven't. Okay, maybe just tell me about your audience. Who's going to want to see your film? Who will you be marketing it to? You don't know this either. Okay, then I'm going to assume you haven't thought about how you'll be getting your film out into the world then, right? I think I see what's going on here. I was once in your shoes. A great idea for a doc. Camera in one hand, a boom mic in the other. But other than that, not much other than a whole lot of excitement and gumption. And that's great. You'll need all of that. But you'll also need a heck of a lot more if you're looking to make the kind of documentary film that you can be proud of. The kind that people will want to see and will impact them. The kind that won't break the bank while you're making it. And dare I say, you might even make some money from. You need support, and we've got you covered. We built the Documentary Academy with you in mind. We've got all the resources you need to make a successful documentary film you can be proud of. Come and enroll at thedocumentarylife.com academy, and let's turn that doc idea into a reality. Tom Jennings is a Peabody Award-winning documentary filmmaker and journalist. He has written, produced, and directed more than 400 hours of programming on a variety of topics, including politics, religion, history, crime, sports, mystery, and travel. He has produced documentary films all around the globe, always looking for new ways to tell stories that are informative and entertaining, not unlike this show. So thanks for joining us today on The Documentary Life, Tom Jennings. Thank you, Chris, for having me. And I agree about your show. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Tom, what I really like about, I mean, obviously much of our conversation, as we have talked about before, much of it's going to, to center around this idea of archival footage and certainly how you and your company, 1895 Films, how you've been really successfully employing it in particular, more recently with the Smithsonian Channel uh, TV series, The Lost Tapes. But how I'd like to get started is really let's start by talking a little bit about your background, which really started with print journalism, didn't it? That is correct. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I went to Kent State University for a journalism school. 
Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, yes, I was there post-shooting. Yeah, I was going to say, historically, that's an interesting <laughs> place to have gone for journalism school. It's it's a great journalism school there, and I'm really proud to you know be an alumni of, of Kent State. Yeah. It gave me great training, and I work as a print journalist in the Washington, D.C. area mm-hmm. for my first three years out of school, and then I wound up uh, getting work uh, at uh, several newspapers in Southern uh, California in the Los Angeles area. Okay. And I was here during the early 90s, which um, other than being in Los Angeles in, say, the late 40s or early 50s mm-hmm. in the L.A. confidential era, the early 90s in Los Angeles in, in journalism in general, yeah. and especially print journalism, was uh, amazing. I covered everything from... Uh, the O.J. Simpson trial <laughs> yeah. to the Northridge earthquake. Rodney King, the, I'm sure. Rodney King, yeah. the, the police beatings, the riots. Yeah. We had major fires at the time. So that's right. Uh, that's uh, I was a print journalist and I thought I always would be. And actually, it was after the O.J. trial where I thought something was changing with the attitudes towards journalism. You know, I was part of that whole camp O.J. crowd. Oh, wow. And. I just felt like, uh, you know, it wasn't what I had gotten into it for. And I asked a friend of mine who was actually a radio reporter for NPR. Hmm. I said, I, I, I just need to do something else. And she knew a company that was looking for writers for a, a Discovery Channel series. Okay. And um, that series, uh, uh, that actually my first show was on the assassination of John F. Kennedy in oh, Dallas. Okay. And that's where I got the idea to do the all archive show just from my first show because I went down there and there's a museum in Dallas called the Sixth Floor Museum yeah. where a wonderful curator named Gary Mack, who died a few years ago, he had gone around to all the local uh, stations in Dallas and collected all of their coverage. So this is the mm. local stuff, not the national stuff. Wow. And wow. uh, he, he has hundreds of hours of TV and radio. And I remember talking to him and I said, you know, you could just do a whole show and just let this stuff play. That's right. Let you're, it talk for itself. And, and he said, you're right. And uh, it took me uh, something like 14 years to get that that version of uh, an all archive show on the air of the first one I ever did all archive and that was in 2009 hmm. for actually for National Geographic Channel. And it was about the JFK assassination. And yeah. It was very successful for them and it was nominated for an Emmy. It's interesting to hear you describe this, Tom, because I want to get this right. Are, are you suggesting that obviously the seeds were planted early on about the power of telling a story via archival footage? Had you been trying since that sort of first job, if you will, that first gig? Had you always known then that you would be trying to create something, what would ultimately become something like the series, you know, the lost tapes? Did you know from that point on that 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 was the kind of storytelling that you would be doing? Not right away. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought I would do those kind of shows as a kind of one-offs, which we did for a few years after. Okay. Uh, the, the next one we did was on the assassination of Martin Luther King, for example, and uh, that was the one that won the Peabody Award. Yeah. 
and we did we took the same approach, which was, uh, you know, we've all seen the famous national uh, broadcasts of people like Walter Cronkite or Dan Rather, for example. And when you go to these local markets uh, and you find the local reporters, both on it, on television and on the radio, and you you see these stories told, you know, boots on the ground mm. with these local guys, you feel like, wow, how how have I not seen this before? Right. And and so for a long time, I thought I had a very long list that I would carry around to pitch meetings at various networks with events that I believed would be big enough for networks to want, but also would have been covered by local stations in a way that there most likely would be an archive that exists. You're never sure until you go there and start looking around. Right. And some of some of the locals don't keep their stuff at all. They just throw it away or in, back in the day they would tape over it. Yeah, right. Or bulk erase the tapes and use them again. Yeah. <laughs> And, but, you know, I'll just add one quick thing about the, you know, the genesis of the idea actually probably comes from my childhood. There was a show by CBS News called You Are There. And You Are oh, There yeah. had two incarnations. There was one in the 50s and one in the 70s. Yes. And I remember the one in the 70s. Right. And it was basically take the, the conceit of it was, that, you know, we're going to use the resources of CBS News to report on things um, that uh, you wouldn't have ever seen reported on because it uh, they occurred prior to the advent of electronic media. And a, an example I remember is like Dan Rather standing on the deck of the Titanic as it's sinking, you know, and with Walter Cronkite talking to him from the newsroom. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and the difference was that they would have actors play, you know, they would use the real news people right. and they would insert them into these scenes, everything from Rome burning to the Alamo. I mean, it was they were great history lessons using, uh, you know, uh, the idea that, hey, if CBS News was around at that time, this is what it would play like. And. I realized all these years later that in a sense, what I'm doing is almost like a reverse. You are there. Yeah. You know, right. We don't use right. Actors. We use the real stuff. So it is like, Hey, if you weren't alive when Martin Luther King was assassinated or you were, you know, you don't really know the whole story. You get to experience it almost in real time, you know, by us putting it together the way we do so that you can come as close to experiencing that event as a member of the public or a member of the audience as the people who were alive at that time did. Well, and I think what's really impressive um, and has struck me in watching, you know, in particular some of the episodes of The Lost Tapes, there's a couple of things going on here. And that, and that is, I think nowadays, documentary has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and gotten very accepted in the sort of mainstream in terms of mainstream audiences right and Agreed. part of that is technology right and part of that is the acceptance of watching a documentary story by an audience and a lot of what we're seeing we're seeing now doc filmmakers become incredibly inventive and creative in the way that they tell their stories and that includes, you know, animation. That includes reenactment. A, a number of different avenues in which to tell the story. And it used to be, you know, years and years ago, for documentary, 
you thought of, you had this sort of stodgy image of like these old, you know, film clips, archival footage with a narration and a voice simply telling you what the story is with these, you know, old school clips in the background. And I think a lot of the time we still tend to have that association with archival. And what's beautiful about the work that you and your company, 1895 Films, has been doing is you're taking this archival footage and it's almost always footage that we have not seen before and you're creating the story purely purely driven by this footage. There are no talking heads. There are no reenactments. There's no animation. It is purely the footage of archival. The beauty of what you have done with archival footage is you have made it as if it is a fresh and brand new way of storytelling. I, I feel incredibly inspired when I'm watching the films and it gives me another opportunity to tell story in another way. Well, thank you for all that. I'll, I'll accept every word. <laughs> thank you. Uh, but you're right. I, and I have something that I'm sure your, your listeners could relate to in some way. Uh, you know, people that have a passion for trying to tell a story. Uh, a couple of years ago, before we had made the Martin Luther King film, which was the precursor to what is now the lost tapes on the Smithsonian channel. That was the first one we did for the Smithsonian channel. And obviously it did very well for them. Uh, I was at a con a doc conference out here in Los Angeles and there was a panel and it was about his, uh, uh history storytelling. And there was a very prominent producer who's still a prominent producer today. And this person said, if, uh, don't bother pitching the networks anything with archive in it because archive is dead. <laughs> and and I raised my hand and I said, you know, there were four or five uh, pretty prominent producers up there, much more prominent than myself, yeah. certainly, you know, in the nonfiction uh, genre at the time. And I said, you know, there's so much archive that exists and we're always clamoring for more content, more content, more content. And, you know, is it the fault of the archive images that we uh, have not figured out how to better use them? Or mm. is it our fault as producers and storytellers um, for not having developed a way that makes this stuff feel brand new? And I, <laughs> how was I the response? You, there was silence. And there was only one guy, one guy on that panel looked at me and goes, that's a very good question. <laughs> and and then I, you know, I was a little bit snarky about it because I knew how much stuff existed. And That's I said, right. well, I'm not done watching this stuff yet. You know, I want to figure out a better way to use it. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, they just kind of moved on. And <laughs> I think, the, you know, what we're, what we're trying to do, you know, it, people – ask, well, how, you know, how can you make that? How can you possibly make that work? There's no narrator and no, when I was first pitching this to various networks, uh, you know, networks that would be interested in the material, you know, uh, you know, it, they would say that's impossible. Impossible. Can't do it. And so we would have to build, you know, pitch reels or present proof of concept or yeah, whatever they're called now. And we'd say here, you know, we do like 10 minutes without even thinking. Yeah. And, uh, they 
be like, wow, that's and, and I remember one network executive said, We're, this is never going to work because the, the audience needs context. Oh, boy. And that's right. And I said, it is the context. It is the context. Come <laughs> on, man. I, I always joke with anyone who's willing to listen to me about this format and say that uh, the audience is expecting the narrator to come and save them. And they realize after three or four minutes, the narrator's not showing up. They're not showing up. That's right. (laughs) But by doing that, it, it in a way forces the audience to engage in a way. Oh, it's much more participatory this way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned how popular documentaries are uh, in general, thank God these days for all of us. But also this format has, be, you know, other people have copied it a bit and, of you course. know, I'm good for them. But uh, it turns out that, you know, the numbers that we get back from various ratings agencies for when these shows air, uh, in general, these types of shows, even though they're about things that might have happened 40 or 50 years ago, they rate pretty well yeah. amongst young people. That's amazing. And I was on a panel recently where somebody said, why do you think young people like to watch this kind of stuff? And I said, uh, you know, I, I placed the blame fully at the foot of uh, uh, cell phone technology. Hmm. You know, everybody's a camera operator these days. And it's if the image isn't there, the, the thing didn't exist. And people are so trained to be locked in on images and footage now that when you can put that kind of footage together, that really important, significant stuff in a way where you feel like you're watching a movie instead of watching someone tell you what it was like. That's to right. Have, um, that's a completely different experience. It's immersive. And I think young people like that. And, you know, there's this great drive for authenticity mm. and you can't get any more authentic than, you know, the local NBC affiliate in NBC trying to explain what just happened to Martin Luther King at the Lorraine Motel. I think you're, you've made a really great point, Tom. And it's, that's what struck me. Um, I've, I've seen, you know, like I said, a few of the last tapes and, and the most recent one I saw, I saw last night, the, the one that you did on Pearl Harbor. And in some ways, I, in some ways, I could have looked at 10 of those and thought, you know, that's the one I least probably need to know about because I know plenty. I know plenty enough about at least the idea of, of certainly what happened at Pearl Harbor. And then I and, and that's kind of intentionally why I watched it as well. And within five minutes, I was locked into this every bit as much as I would of any sort of feature film or documentary. It is done incredibly cinematically. It's all in this case. Uh, if not all, most of the voices is coming from uh, radio operators at that time. And it's just, I mean, you talk about impactful and putting you there while it's happening. It doesn't get any more immediate than that. And even if for one second you had had somebody come on and either give a narration or a talking head gave a, a an account of something that happened, it totally would have like it, it totally would have taken you out of almost this feel, this cinematic experience that you have the entire time. And I, I and I don't exaggerate when I say that I felt like I was on the edge of my seat throughout the duration of watching this film about an event that happened. I don't you know seventy to eighty years ago, <laughs> right. and that has long been history. 
Um, that's the right. amazing thing about what you're doing with the lost tapes. The Japanese press is taking a seemingly bold attitude toward the United States today, following the announcement of the Three Power Alliance. Tokyo newspaper, believed to reflect the government's views, claims America's State Department has mismanaged its affairs so badly that it has made an enemy of Japan. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned that one because that was one when uh, that was the Smithsonian Channel idea as part of the series. And that one I just kind of scratch my head because it was before the age of television and um i just thought how are we going to tell the story <laughs> of pearl harbor with just media from the time and of course you immediately think radio and you know we think radio by the way for your for your listeners yeah. on your podcast when uh, if they're going out and they're doing whether it's a very current story or something that's from 20 or 40 years ago right Look, look for radio because radio, much like a podcast, uh, you have to be a bit more colorful in your description of events. And so these radio reporters really knew how to, you know, tell a tale. Mm. And and what we did is we went to all of the networks. Uh, NBC has a terrific archive in general, NBC News, and they work with us quite a bit. Mm. And, uh, you know, big kudos to them because they 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 get what we do, and um, they are very very helpful. But we went to them and we said, "What about radio from 1941?" Whoa. And they said, "You know, I don't think we can help you with that uh. one. You know, <laughs> we might have some bits and pieces here and there." But what we had found, you know, leave no stone unturned yeah. in this world. We went to the National Archives because all of the government films from the attack on Pearl Harbor are there. Yeah. And we found out that a lot of radio broadcasts just in general from the 30s and the 40s news broadcasts were um, uh, given by the networks at the time, like NBC they were given to the National Archives, uh, especially from December 7th, because of the historical significance. Mm. And we literally had one of the archivists like walk down. It's it's uh, I'm not kidding. It's like, you know, the the last scene from Indiana Jones where, you know, there's just so much stuff oh, wow. trying to find it. And they they had cans of tape that as far as they knew, no one had brushed the dust off since the 1940s. They'd, they'd never been transferred. You know, they were raw news reports from the day. And, you know, the way we told the story, because there was only one very brief news report that came out of Honolulu during the attack, the, you know, the way we, once we found that footage, we realized that we could show and you could hear, you know, we we mix everything, you know, every we have magazine covers, newspaper headlines, uh, uh, newsreel footage, whatever, you know, it's just like we throw everything we can at this uh, at these stories. But audio for us is king because without it, there is no quote narrator. There's no one telling the story. 
and we found all of this terrific stuff. And what you get from watching that Pearl Harbor episode is kind of the dawning of the information as it slowly starts to come in. Right. You know, it wasn't instantaneous back then. People just got, you know, got wind that something was going on in Hawaii and it got worse (sighs) and worse and worse. And you could follow this through the news reports that were coming out continuously that day. That's right. And that's why it has this kind of crescendo feature film like feel Feel to to it. it, Yeah. Because the storytellers themselves, you're right there with them, like, you know, what's going on? And you get to live it as they lived it, you know, granted in a compressed period of time. Yeah. But it, I, I was amazed how well it worked. And, you know, fortunately, it, it worked really well. But it was definitely one where I thought maybe we're pushing the needle back. Yeah. Too. <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. We did it. Tom, when you when you, Tom, help us understand when you approach um, maybe local outlets, right? You you approach local media outlets, and what is that process like? So if we were to, we needed some archival footage as filmmakers, and we wanted to approach you know local media outlets. What is that process like for you guys? Obviously, you're established and you've been doing this for a while, but perhaps you can recommend to you know certainly to 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 our listeners what is a way that you would recommend that we approach uh, local media outlets in order to obtain uh, archival footage mhm uh well it helps if you can say something like i'm doing a film for smithsonian channel or national geographic right. or history <laughs> channel uh but you know you know they're very busy people and uh uh local uh news stations, you know, are worried about what they're going to put on at six and 11. Yeah. They aren't worried about what happened 40 years ago. That doesn't mean that they don't have the stuff, but a lot of them in the, I would say medium markets to small markets, which is often where you'll get the best stuff. Yeah. um, They don't have someone like handling the archives. Mm. They, they give it to a production assistant they give it to an intern. Oftentimes there's like one editor who like understands the value of things and will, you know, like put the tapes aside, uh, you know, and just start stacking them on shelves. Mm. So my advice is first be very professional. You would call a station and say, you're a filmmaker and that you're doing a documentary film on such and such a topic. Um, do your homework before you call them. Don't just like say, you know, uh, you know, make sure, for example, I make, uh, I, I have some great researchers here, but I always say, make sure that that station existed in 1975. Uh, Right. (laughs) There's a lot, you know, there's nothing worse than calling and saying, you know, hey, what do you have archive from uh, the summer of 75? And they're like, well, this station started in 1989. Yeah, right. And you're wasting everybody's time. That's so right. Try and see if there's, you know, the station's been around. Oftentimes, you know, I come from Cleveland and we discovered um, that there's a, a Northeast Ohio Media Archive Association oh, wow. where all the stations got together years ago and said, look, we don't want to like handle all this stuff. 
but we're going to create this like small group of uh, people that know how to handle it. And we're just going to give it to them. And then they can like license it out uh, on our behalf. There's lots of places like that. So, you know, do your homework first, call your, you know, you're going to, uh, uh, the receptionist will answer the phone, just introduce yourself as a filmmaker, say you're making a film about whatever topic and that you understand that, uh, you know, if there's an archive available at you know, this particular station, uh, it may uh, be something that could help you tell your story and that you're willing to license the footage and is there someone there who ha handles at that station uh, licensing archival footage from years ago? And they'll usually dump you off to, you know, some kind of, uh, uh, you know, city editor in the newsroom or something like that. And uh, they, they will know whether or not, the, in general, whether there's an archive there, if someone handles it. I know it doesn't help with, you know, footage and with uh, audio, yeah. but, uh, you know, I come from the print world and newspapers are notorious for saving everything. Right. So if you want prints, for example, uh, you can always get, you know, you can always go to newspapers and look for the newspapers that have closed. Oftentimes, you know, so many newspapers have shut down in the last 10 years. And if they're not owned by big generations, their archives usually go to the public library and the library houses all of that stuff. So, and people forget that. Uh, I'll tell you a, a very quick example. We did something on the Challenger disaster, uh, the Challenger shuttle disaster. And we were looking for a way, you know, it was the 30th anniversary two years ago on the space shuttle Challenger. And, you know, there's been a lot of documentaries, both television and otherwise that have been done on the Challenger. Mm -hmm. And we were sitting around, it's like, you know, wh where are we going to, you know, the, it, it, of course, we would go to the local stations in Florida. But uh, for those who don't remember, there was that was the teacher in space program. Yes. With, with a wonderful woman named Krista McAuliffe. Krista McAuliffe, who, right. Who died in that. And I said, you know, Krista McAuliffe was from Concord, New Hampshire. That was her hometown. I wonder what's in Concord, you oh, know, man. is there like a radio station there? And we wound up uh, calling some small radio station in Concord, New Hampshire. And th this is why you should always think outside the box. And, you know, you call and introduce yourself, say what you're doing. And we got a hold of one of the news directors. And this guy was uh, almost in tears of, of joy because he was like, you want to use our our stuff from Krista McAuliffe? Oh, I mean, nobody had man. ever bothered to go to Concord because they're so busy getting everything out of the main newsrooms in New York of and in course. Washington. And the news director who covered the Krista McAuliffe story became kind of one of our main characters in that film. Wow, yeah, that's right. Because he was, you know, he was following her for the entire year that she was in training, and he was at the grandstand in Florida when the happened, day that yeah. it exploded. Yeah. And it's just heart-wrenching to listen to. But at the same time, as far as getting someone who's like on the inside to make it feel like you're watching a movie and come to life, that I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And that's that's the one we actually did win an Emmy for that last year. Okay. 
um, for documentary research. And we beat out really heavy hitters on that, like uh, places like American Experience and wow. uh, HBO Films. And, uh, you know, so, we're, you know, I didn't really expect we would win. But mm. I think, you know, finding that Concord station is a good example of people being surprised by what you have and then being willing to like you know sign in for, to follow the story as it unravels uh, before them so and, and fortunately for us the emmy judges thought so too right now going live to cape canaveral in florida here's news director jerry little jerry what's happening it was july 1985 glenn when krista mccallum beat out better than 1,000 other teachers you've chosen to be the first private citizen into space we're just minutes away from krista's blast off a very exciting time at kennedy space center on cape canaveral in florida patience has been a key element uh, around the nasa operation all this week we're going to join tom and tier now once again uh just getting down to about three minutes and they think they can do it. They are counting. The ice is cleared away and Challenger should be going away very soon. Let's go down to the Kennedy Space Center and take a look at Challenger sitting on the pad. I, I remember that event um, because I was, I think I was 14 years old. I remember where I was, you know, where I was in school. And and uh, that's just one of those sort of landmark events. If you were an American that you remember happening and you kind of remember where you were at that time. And the uh, in in particular in watching it, the footage, a lot of the footage that you that you speak of is really what uh, struck me was a lot of the con the footage that you had um, the footage coming out of Concord, New Hampshire, and certainly in the schools. Um, those were just uh, oh yeah, yeah, just so emotional, incredible images. Yeah, and then her lesson plan as well. We opened the film up with her yeah. d uh, doing a rehearsal. Oh man. And I'd only seen a very small clip of that, and I hope I don't get called on it by some doc maker out there, but, you know, whenever we're doing one of these, we try and watch what everybody else has done yes. so that we don't do the same thing. That, that's good advice, too. Make sure you're not treading where, you know, five other people have gone. I mean, there's always going to be stuff that, uh, you know, is so iconic, you have to use it. But, you know, find out what other people have presented, you know, in a way uh, that they told their stories so that you're not using the same images or the same breakdown of the story format. But, uh, you know, the uh, Krista McAuliffe's lesson plan, like I said, I've only seen it used one other time mm. and it w wasn't used nearly as much as we used it. Um, we, when, when you call a place like NASA, for example, and their archive division has been scaled back, unfortunately, in the last few years, so they don't have as many resources to just kind of grab everything you want. But at the time, um, they sent us, uh, like 40 beta tapes, like here's our challenger collection, you know, for you guys. And so we went through it and on like tape 38 one of the researchers said oh my god look at this is like the, they there's there's a lot more than even what we showed in the film and we checked with nasa and it's like why hasn't anybody ever used this before yeah and you know it's like anything else it's because people find the greatest hits in the first 10 tapes you got it and and they don't look it's not like we found that because it was being hidden somewhere it was part of the collection that anybody could access, but who wants to take the time to go through 80 hours of footage? Well, you know what? On hour 75, 
we hit something that was truly remarkable. So, you know, look, you can you can do it at double time, you know, to yeah, fast yeah, forward exactly. through stuff. Scrub but through it, double time. <laughs> I mean, I cannot put a tape down and not have looked at the entire thing in some shape or form. Wow, that's because impressive. I'm, I'm yeah. so, well, I'm so afraid that there's going to be the one thing on there that nobody else has used. Yeah, right, right. You know, when we approach locals, even the nationals, uh, you know, or uh, various archive collections, mm. we don't want the greatest hits reel, Mm-mm. which is what they're going to give you because they've already yeah. prepared it. And, right. You know, when they, <laughs> they're used it, to giving it, that out. And it's like, oh, you want the Pearl Harbor reels? Here you go. Yeah. And it's like, and that's why viewers are like, oh, I've seen it all because they see the same things over and over and over again. Right. When we go to uh, uh, any source, we always say, I don't want the cut piece. I don't want the greatest hits reel. I want the raw tape from that day if you have it. I want to see the reporters getting ready to do the broadcast on the air. Yes. Uh, when we go to photographers, I we always say, I don't want to see the famous cover of Life that uh, that everyone has seen you know, 10,000 times, (laughs) I want to see your contact sheet. I want to see the 30 other pictures that you didn't. And then we use, as you've probably seen, we use contact sheets as an art element to begin with. And then if we pick any of those uh, uh, images, we pick one that is like, oh, well, that's from the same day and place, but I've never seen that one before. And for whatever reason, the photographer, the photo editor, didn't choose it. We we did one last uh, film very well for us on Princess Diana. Mm. And you think, really, what what else can you show about Princess Diana? Well, we did exactly that. We went to we didn't go to the BBC, for example. Yeah, you right. Know? We we went to Midlands Television, which is basically in the yes. middle of the UK. That's right. Uh, which is where you know they cover Balmoral, their Scot- the royal family Scottish home. They cover Windsor, which is, uh, you know, where uh, the wedding uh, that's coming up is going to be held. That's right. Uh, you know, so th- and and they were shooting this gorgeous 35 millimeter film footage during mm. the early 80s. And no one bothers to go there or they wow. don't go there very much. And we did the same thing. We contacted probably dozens of photographers and we said, we don't want the shot that everybody knows. We want the one next to it. We yeah. we want people to look at it and say, wait a minute, I know that story, but I've never seen that before. Right. And, um, the, the, you know, never settle for what everybody else has done, you know, uh, because otherwise you're just doing a retread and you're, you're not going to bring any freshness to the story. You know, our mandate is always, look, these are iconic stories. These are the stories people think they know, like Pearl Harbor. We're going to find a way to tell it to them like they're hearing it for the first time. That's a high bar to cross. But if you look outside the normal boundaries of where people normally go to get these kind of images and sounds to tell their stories. There's an entire world out there 
Uh, the last thing I'll say about this, when, when news crews go out to shoot something, you know, they used to have tapes, for example. They'd have what they call 30-minute loads. You know, those were the tapes that they put in. And they'd go out and they'd shoot and, they, you know, the major event was going on, whatever it was that we would want to tell the story of today. That tape would go back to the newsroom. It would go to some frantic editor who was trying to put together a piece for the broadcast to go on the air almost immediately. <laughs> he'd shuffle through the tape. He'd pick four or five minutes that he thought best told the story. That tape came out of that editor's tape machine. It would go on a shelf and an entire world was lost. Yes. I want to know what's on the rest of that tape. That's the world you want to explore. Yeah. Just because an editor one day didn't think it it was the right stuff to tell the story doesn't mean that 30 or 40 years later, it isn't the perfect stuff to tell the story. Tom, how can we see the lost tape seasons? Uh, I understand they just put them on Amazon. So if you have Prime, I think you can watch them. Mm. Um, And uh, the Smithsonian Channel, so there's two seasons now. There's more uh, coming out this fall on various topics. Uh, Let's see, have they announced? I don't think they've, they haven't announced the topics yet, but uh, I I can promise you that they're very, they're surprising. They're filled with amazing material that nobody has seen before uh, or heard. Uh, They're stories that, again, you think you're familiar with. You think, oh, what else could they possibly show me? And trust me, uh, I, what we come up with here sometimes amazes me. (laughs) Like I just, there's always a moment, Chris, I have to say where I think, this is the one where it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It's not out there. And we just keep trying and trying and trying. And then all of a sudden the floodgates open. And to, I would give that advice to anybody who's you know trying to figure out how to find images to tell their story. If they need to find archival images, you know, uh, we do everything from talking with uh, the local libraries, like I said, if it's a small town, you know where you go if you're in a small little town, say in the south, we've done a lot of civil rights stuff, you go to the fire station because it, there's always one guy at the fire station who knows everybody in town because he's been there for 50 years and he's going to say, you know, Joe down the street is an amateur photographer and he took pictures of all that stuff. You should talk to him. Boom. Incredible. Incredible. Tom, as we wrap up, are there any sort of final words of wisdom or advice you can give us uh, that can help us in terms of archival footage? Uh, Well, just, you know, it's easy to say, be passionate about it. You know, sometimes it's for us, it's a job, you know, it's hard work. Mm. Uh, But look for the joy in it. uh, You know, the types of things that we wind up creating Uh, We get calls from uh, high schools and universities all the time asking for copies of what we do. Oh, wow. Pearl Pearl Harbor, for example. Yeah. Because they'll say, you know what? In one hour, I can show – this is what a teacher will say to us. In one hour, I can show your film, and they will get more out of that than what I can tell them in one week. And, you know, if you're going to, like, put your heart and soul into something – you have to swing for the fences. You yeah. know, you have to want to crush it every single time. Otherwise, why bother? You know, if you're if you're digging and you can't find anything, dig a little more. There's always something else. And don't be constricted by thinking everything's on the internet 
or you know you think you've tried every source mm. possible there's gonna be one other place that nobody's thought to look and when you go there you're gonna be the person that found it and it'll make your film amazing Tom Jennings, what an honor and pleasure to have you on The Documentary Life. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm a fan, man. I'll be honest. Ever since I started watching The Lost Tapes, I am a fan, not only as someone, as a viewer, um, but really as and as a filmmaker, but also, I should say, um, as a fellow editor. I just think it's amazing the stories that you're creating out of archival footage. Uh, thank you so much for being on the program. Chris, thank you. It's a real honor to be here. I appreciate it. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.